Good morning. It has probably crossed some minds this morning as to why I'm wearing a tie. You may think this is just Stuart having a throwback to his early days in ministry when all preachers wore ties. But actually, it has a deeper significance than that. And uh, I'll need to complete the significance in just a moment. Okay. We're, we broke last week from our series in, in 1 and 2 Timothy uh, to begin again looking at the Psalms. And Joel spoke on Psalm 45 and did a superb introduction. I thought it was a superb sermon, but a superb introduction to the whole concept of Psalms and what they were. A whole series of songs and poems written over many, many years to help express worship for the people of Israel. Most are designed to be sung. Many are simply exclamations of praise, and some deal with the deep perplexities of life like, like last week. Today, however, is different. Hence the tie. Just a moment. Now, surprisingly enough, I don't dress like this very often, and nor do many people today, though I personally love the style, and as soon as jackets this length are back in, love it, love it. Though I'm still waiting for jackets to come back in, gentlemen, aren't we? Yeah, good, the back there. I just thought I'd give you a visual aid, because this morning we're looking at a psalm which is essentially a wedding song. That's what it is. It's a song designed to be sung at a wedding of one of the kings of Israel and probably sung thereafter at the wedding of many kings of Israel. And weddings conjure up all sorts of interesting thoughts in your mind, especially as, as like me, you've had a, a privilege of conducting many weddings. Uh, not everything always goes to plan. Uh, it, it is a strange thing. It occurred to me as I was preparing this, an extra thought came to me this morning. Um, the amount of time and effort the bride puts in to selecting, choosing, sometimes having made the dress. And those of us who, as fathers, been round shops, you know, we, we know that it's a lot of time and effort. And it occurred to me as to why a bride wears a wedding dress. And I'll tell you why a bride should wear a wedding dress. The bride should wear the wedding dress so that when the groom sees her, all he can think of is her. And when she puts the dress on, all she can think of is him. I suspect it's not always the case. But it's interesting how customs come. First wedding I ever was involved in as a, as a minister of, of religion, uh, the, the bride's mother, who I knew well and you didn't dare disobey her, um, Asked if I would wear an academic gown and hood. Academic gown, uh, I'll take this off in a minute. Academic gown and hood uh, for the wedding. And my reply was, well, as the bride's going to be in fancy dress, I might as well be. <laughs> Didn't go down too well at the time. 
Uh, and just one or two, one or two things. I mean, my, my father used to tell a story, which is an awful story, really, but I'll share it with you. I may have said it before, I can't remember, about, about the, the middle of an Anglican wedding, uh, middle, early part, first hymn. All of a sudden, uh, the groom uh, looks a bit nervous, and he coughs during the hymn, and he says to the vicar, Vicar, I forgot to ask you, how much do I owe you for all this? <laughs> and the vicar looked a bit perplexed, and he said, well... My son, I, I usually leave it to the groom to decide how much he thinks the bride is worth. So during the first thing, the groom has a peep under the veil. And he fishes it in his pocket and he gives the vicar a pound. The vicar's a bit perplexed, so he peeps under the veil and gives him 50p change. That <laughs> sadly... Sadly, that humour is not always appreciated at weddings. <laughs> then there was a wedding I, I did, Neil and Beverly, their names were, and Beverly was a stunningly beautiful woman. And when she walked in the back of the church in her wedding dress and her, her husband-to-be, Neil, turned around, I knew exactly what was going through his mind. It was, how on earth could it be me? And... I don't think I'm exaggerating, just about every male jaw in the building dropped as this girl walked up the aisle. It was astonishing, just... Oh. I thought about playing a, a bit of the film The Wedding Singer, but of course I've never seen it, so I couldn't really play it, I don't know what it's about, except The Wedding Singer. I was once a wedding singer. I sang at a wedding once. I was never asked to do it again, but there you go. <laughs> Versus... Now, the whole psalm is topped and tailed. The whole song is topped and tailed by verse 1 and verse 17. Verse 1 says this, My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. And then in verse 17, I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, all generations will praise you forever and ever. Essentially, in the first verse, the psalmist or the singer is inviting everybody who's listening to his song in this wedding to, to allow his words to implant in their minds and on their consciousness a, a kind of picture or, or a, a frame of thought that will last forever. He doesn't want this just to be a fleeting moment. My tongue will be the pen of a ready writer. It, it's going to be engraved in all your consciousness what I'm going to sing about, he says. Now, there are two ways of understanding the intervening verses. One is to follow their original purpose, the fulsome declaration of the amazing royal bridegroom and a great tribute to the beauty of his amazing bride. But from the very earliest times, this psalm was seen as a picture of the relationship between God and his people, between the groom and his people, between God and Israel, or God and the church. And when we get to that part, it becomes particularly relevant to us in our spiritual walk. But let's first of all consider the groom. Verse 2. From verse 2 to 9. This is sung to the groom. All right. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one, Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. 
Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Set your sharp arrow, sorry, let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of the kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Now, can you imagine that being sung? Can you imagine? There's this, this bloke standing there, dressed astonishingly, all right, with his sword by his side. You know, times have changed just a little bit. Sword by his side. And, and there's this, this girl beside him, and the singer starts to sing. Can you imagine that happening at a wedding if, if one of the officia, officiants, whatever they call them, the people who do it, one of the people at the front had the job of singing to the groom and then to the bride about their, about their appearance? The groom is the most excellent of people. His lips are anointed with gracious words. He's clothed in majesty and splendor. No, no simple suit job here, not even a, a long jacket. He's, he's, he's dressed up as much as the bride is dressed up, possibly even more so. He has a sword on his side and the singer imagines him riding out to bring good things to the world. Truth, humility, righteousness. He's awesome. He's going to destroy the enemies of the kingdom and all nations will recognize his priority. His throne, because it is a God-given throne, will last forever. And justice will be his priority. Because he loves what is right, God has made him above all his companions. Joy covers him as an anointing. His flowing robes are rich in fragrant scent as he emerges from the most beautiful of palaces. Daughters of kings are his servants. And now to climax it all, there beside him is the gold-bedecked bride. Wow. Yeah. Now I have to confess I find this difficult. Because I'm quite pragmatic, really. A number of times over the years, young couples have come to me and said, oh, we'd love to get married, but we can't afford to yet. I said, what do you mean, can't afford to? I'll do it for free. Well, yeah, but of course, we've got, uh, there's a dress, and then there's the reception, and then there's a honeymoon. I said, no. I said, all that's optional. Okay. Marriage is something different. Never managed to convince many of them, but the whole point is, marriage is a, a, a union that's made in the sight of God. So I find this difficult. But on the other hand, as I've reflected on it, I've suddenly begun to realize that sometimes, because those of us who are called low church, anybody who's not sort of high Anglican Catholic or low church, that's us, those of us who are called low church and don't do much about ceremony and don't dress up much to come to church and all that sort of stuff, you know, those of us who are like that, sometimes we take hold of that which is precious and that which is glorious and that which is holy and that which is beautiful and we go, yeah, yeah, fine, lovely. <clears throat> we'll soon go to plan B, but at the moment we're all right. Here, within this psalm, we find something splendid happening. We find the whole crowd entering in to something which is beautiful. 
the dress of the groom and of the bride aren't something in and of themselves. They are there to declare that something fundamental is happening, something glorious is happening, something astonishing is happening. And to some extent, occasionally in our church life, we, we lose sight of that. We become very mundane. We become very, we say, well, we don't want to dress things up too much because, you know, we need to be. That's true. But we've lost sometimes the art of celebration. And here, boy, is there celebration. Let's, let's shift from the groom. Let's see what is sung to the bride. <clears throat> from verse 10. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your lord. The city of Tyre will come with a gift. The people of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her, those brought to be with her. Led in with, glad, with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. Mm. He reminds her right at the, outlet, uh, at the outset in his, his singing that uh, this is a new start, this is a new beginning. As a, a bride of a king, she'll have come from a royal background herself. It's time to leave your people. Time to leave your, your family, your your nation, even. It's different now. You have a new loyalty. You belong to a new people. The past is not to be dwelt on. She's to honor her husband and, and as, as her lord. Ooh. Yeah. He is now her king as well. But don't worry. Don't worry, because this lord, this king, this king is utterly captivated by your beauty. This king is totally besotted with you. Don't be afraid. The daughter of Tyre might here refer to an actual person, but Tyre was the main trading center of the day. So what's being said here really, the implication is that even commerce takes second place to her and wealthy men will look to her for favor rather than the other way around. She too is glorious. Her dress has gold woven in the fabric and her garments are covered in elaborate embroidery. With her maidens are in, in attendance and she is led from the chambers to the palace of the king with great joy and gladness. You can imagine the fanfare. You can imagine the crowd. You can imagine what's going on here. And it fills the whole place. Whoa. Wow, 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 wow. Oh. Now, try and get hold of this. I've done enough weddings to realize that the majority of people who come to a wedding may I be forgiven. Many people who come to a wedding think, how long do we have to sit through before we can get to the food? Yeah. This is turning it completely round. Completely round. It is your utter and total privilege to be here at this moment. The crowd are standing on tiptoe to get a view, to see this glory and this splendor, and this singer is describing it all to them. The people literally are beginning to shake with both joy and kind of awe at the same time. That they are there this day, this day of all days. <sighs> Have I sold it to you yet? Uh, 
There are disadvantages of being British, those of us who are. I think verse 16 is addressed to them both when it says, uh, your sons will take the place of your fathers, uh, you will make them princes throughout the land. I think that's a, a sort of declaration of the ongoing nature of the, of the family. But what's it got to do with us, really? Yeah, we can begin to imagine, we can begin to picture, we can begin to think, gosh, wedding ceremonies were a bit different then and all that kind of stuff. We were coming back from um, South End yesterday, uh, popped down again to see my mother in Clacton and Betty's mother in South End and then back, back up. And we stopped at a service station in Blythe, not that Blythe, that Blythe, on the A1. And, uh, and there, as we were coming out, were a whole load of Sikhs a whole coach full, obviously on the way to, I presume, or from a wedding, I don't know which. And it was astonishing. You've never seen dresses like it in your life. Well, you probably have, but probably not so many all together in one place. Just the colour, the elaborate nature. And then there are all these men in turbans and smart jackets and a whole load of them in red velvet jackets and bright orange turbans. Don't ask. I've no idea what the significance of the colour was. It certainly didn't go together. But the, whole, but the whole thing was a kind of ha, oh, and even felt ha oh, at a service station on the A1, you know? But what has it got to do with us, really? Through the Old Testament, the relationship between God and his people Israel is likened to that of husband and wife. In fact, if you think of what Scripture does, Scripture takes all of the closest relationships that are humanly possible and applies them within the context of God and his relationship to us. So God is our father. God has the heart of a mother, the Bible tells us. Uh, we become children of God, and by his spirit we can call him Abba. You know, all those intimate things. But right at the heart of it is this picture of God as the husband and his people as the wife. God loves the people. He makes them in his, his own. He calls the people of Israel together. And in captivity uh, in Egypt, they become a people. And he leads them out of captivity and into the promised land. And Moses gives them the law and the way. And whoa, whoa. And you be my people. You worship me. And I'll be your God. You'll be okay. But we know from Scripture again and again and again, the bride was unfaithful. The bride ran after other gods. And as a result, uh, the heart of God was broken and great discipline was brought to this bride, the people of Israel. But God's love continues through the whole story. It's interwoven through the whole of the Old Testament. So that when you get to the book of Hosea, we find the most astonishing picture through the life of Hosea of God being prepared to take back the broken and repentant prostitute and make her once again the desire of his heart. It's astonishing. The expected Messiah that the Old Testament promises is portrayed as the groom. And when we come to the New Testament, we find that the imagery goes on being applied to God's people, the church. And one of the key images of what the church is, is that we are the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ, yes, of course that's true. We are a living temple, the Bible says, that also is true. But we are the bride of Christ. And that speaks about our destiny as the people of God. In Ephesians uh, chapter 5, in the middle of teaching on family relationships from verse 31, uh, Paul says this, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, 
but I am talking about Christ and the church. Do you know, I've never actually heard anybody unpack, that's a modern word for exegete, just deliver all that that might imply because it's astonishing. And then in, in Revelation verse nine, uh, uh, chapter 19, verses 6 to 8, that great uh, vision that John has of the end time as it comes to its climax and the church is about to, revealed, about to be revealed, we find in verse 6 in, in chapter 19, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made us help ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. You still with me? Still with me? Uh, the point I'm trying to get across at this stage is that just as the people at that day were excited at the prospect of this wedding, and we can begin to enter into it, when, when God thinks of us as his bride, and a scripture unfolds it, it unfolds something which is quite astonishing, quite beautiful, quite remarkable. Revelation 21. This is getting right towards the end of the book. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. What is the church? The church is the city of God. It's one of the pictures of what the church is. Coming down out of heaven as a bride prepared. And a I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will, himself will be with them, will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And then from verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last, seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels of the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. It goes on, it goes on. Now, after we've been back in 1 and 2 Timothy, we're going to come back to the Psalms and I get to preach in August on Psalm 48. And uh, God must have a hand in that. Because in both these Psalms, God has given me, other than the, the gospel itself, my heart to preach. Do you understand? Do you have even the beginning of understanding of how precious the church is to Jesus? Really. That thing that we sometimes moan about. <laughs> yeah. The church. That thing which manages to in include people from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of temperaments and all sorts of political views and all sorts of ages and all sorts of races. 
that thing which brings together the most ridiculous combination of people imaginable. And out of that combination makes something which is so beautiful and so glorious and so holy, so much so that we, we are the desire of Christ's heart. The church is the reason Jesus came. The church is the reason Jesus died, that he might bring to himself his bride, his eternal eternal companion. Of all the things that are on this earth, the church is the only thing which lasts through all eternity. You know? It's not an optional extra. I've got friends who say, oh, well, you know, I, 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 like, I like to think of my relationship with God as a very personal, private thing. And I, I do church because the Bible says it's important, but it's not really that significant to me. You've missed the point. We are saved into community. We're not saved into the option of, of tickling our own private uh, spiritual desires. We're saved to make it work. We're saved to begin to prove to the world and to Satan that the gospel is true, that redemption has happened, that reconciliation in Christ is a reality. Jesus loves his church. The love Jesus has for his church is more than any human love has ever been. The royal groom is more splendid, more beautiful, more righteous, more true than any earthly king or any earthly husband. The church, the holy bride, will be the most glorious and beautiful earthly reality imaginable. Well, that's what Jesus is coming back for, isn't it? In Ephesians 5, Paul goes on to say, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. If only we could see the church as Jesus sees the church. We would be on tiptoe. We would come to our meetings together with excitement in our hearts, thinking this is when we most clearly represent what eternity will be. When we come together. Oh, it brings on an onus that we would walk with God, that we would allow his spirit to do his work, that we would make sure there are no unresolved relationship difficulties within the family of God that we would make sure that love is, is there in all its fullness. We would make sure that we, as best as possible, within the limits of being human, get it as right as possible in our relationship, in our being the people of God, in our worship, declaring the glory of the King who loves us, our heavenly husband. Oh, am I getting excited yet? You bet. When some of the ladies in one of my churches began to object that according to Scripture, we're all... We all inherit as sons. And they said, well, I'm a daughter. I said, well, yes, but in, in that context, you're a son. Because inheritance was only male. And it says both me, male and female inherit as sons. So I said, you think you've got a problem? I'm going to spend eternity as a bride. <laughs> you know? God is making his church into something so beautiful. We are the delight of his heart. And the Lord Jesus left the ivory palaces. There's an old hymn about that, isn't there? Out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe. Yeah. 
There is, honestly. Out of the glory and splendor of heaven, the Lord Jesus came for us. Not just me, and not just you, but us. Individual salvation is very important, but sometimes we evangelicals lose fact, sight of the fact it's not about that through eternity. It's about us. It's about the church. It's about us rising up to be what he has called us to be. And for now, let's just seek to live up to our calling. Let's seek to learn how to love one another. Seek how to live in holiness. That, by the way, is why uh, sin is such a big issue with, uh, for Christians. Okay? When we, when we fall into sin, it isn't just that we are damaged. The whole church is damaged. Paul's very strong in that in the whole area of sexual sin that we actually bring the whole reputation of God into the gutter just by our own individual actions because we are inseparable from one another. It's not possible to be separated from the people of God. You may want to be now, but in heaven you're going to put up with me forever. And one final thing before I pray. Although this is a... a a corporate thing about being church. Church is made up of people. <laughs> Individual people who Jesus calls because he loves them. You and me. People he calls from all sorts of odd backgrounds and all sorts of personalities. In my case, godly parents, my mother's still alive, godly parents, brought up to love the Lord, never remember a time when I didn't love Jesus. Remember putting my trust in him personally. All that is true, but I was a desperately shy and desperately introverted child and teenager. And by the grace of God and through the people of God, he enabled me to be a preacher and teacher. How does that work? I'll tell you how it works. It's God. He loves you. Every one of us in this room, he loves. He knows you by name. He is passionate about you. Every time you think of, yeah, well, you know, all, all this, it's lovely to be part of this church because all these people deserve God's blessing so much. No, we don't. That's what unites us, unites us together. None of us deserve God's blessing. But God, in his love, knows you through and through. And for those who are still on the precipice of deciding whether to follow him or not, trust me, God's going to give you a mighty hard time until you get... Get it right. He'll never make your mind up for you. But he'll work at it. Why? Because he loves you. And when eternity dawns, in whatever way that comes to us, the only continuing factor that we have experienced in this life that will be there will be the church. The family of God. Isn't that exciting? more in August. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you give us many pictures, many ways of thinking about your love and your grace. And thank you for this particular one. Thank you that you indeed are the real husband and the church is the real bride and the human equivalents are, are, are pictures of that. 
Thank you that your heart for your people is so great that you not only called us, but you wouldn't let us go. Thank you you had patience with the people of Israel through all those centuries. Thank you that you sent Jesus and that through him, your heart of love has been opened up to us too. Would you help us to respond personally and individually, but would you help us see in one another the beauty that Jesus sees? In Jesus' name, amen.